In 2005, there were 323 living liver donor transplants. While the number may seem not so large, living donors are a growing source for organ transplantation and helping to reduce the number of people waiting for liver transplants. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Robert Brown, Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation at Columbia University Medical Center and Chief Division of Abdominal Organ Transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Today we are discussing living liver donor transplantation. Dr. Brown, we spoke about the different diseases in which patients receive living donors, and we talked about alcoholism. Why sometimes has the public been so against liver transplantation for, let's say, certain athletes who have been alcoholics and they received organs for that disease? Alcohol is curious in our society in that it's so accepted, almost necessary as part of our social fabric at every party, major event, wedding. You can't have a wedding without a toast and some champagne. And yet if there is a problem related to alcohol, it's associated with stigma, the image of the Bowery bum laying in the street corner with the paper bag. I think that we have to start moving from the view of alcoholism as a bad habit, run amok, to that of a disease. I do not think that most alcoholics choose to be problem drinkers, to destroy their life and their health with drinking. But why it is viewed differently from many other diseases that have a behavioral component, whether that be smoking or obesity, is unclear. Well, let's talk about what's involved in becoming a living donor. Let's say that I wanted to be a living donor. What's step one? Step one in our program and in most programs is that the recipient has to be viewed as an acceptable candidate for transplantation. What does that mean? Meaning that in most places they have to be on the waiting list for a deceased donor organ. We do not use living donation as a way to make someone who is not viewed to be a candidate for a transplant a candidate for transplantation. That's viewed by many to be too coercive. An example would be someone that had a very large tumor or who had been drinking right up to the time that they were critically ill in the ICU. That has been an area of debate and concern, but given that living donor liver transplantation is not quite at as advanced a stage as living donor kidney transplantation. Most have felt that the patient should be a candidate for a deceased donor graft. And the way I like to look at it is the best living donor recipient candidate would be someone who would be a great candidate for a transplant today if an organ was available but is likely to have complications or die while waiting for a deceased donor graft to get to the top of the list. Now, if I'm the living donor, how do they evaluate me? Well, the first step is to have a comprehensive medical evaluation. This is one, 
liver-focused. The purpose of making sure that there is no liver disease is for both the safety of the donor. You wouldn't want to remove half of the liver if there may be a pre-existing liver disease. And obviously also for the safety of the recipient. You wouldn't want to replace a diseased liver with a liver that had another occult liver injury. Second is just a general medical health exam. Make sure that there's no unsuspected heart, lung, kidney disease that would increase their surgical risk. And finally, just general health maintenance. We make sure that every patient's cancer screening is up to date and that they have no medical issues that might be impacted down the road by the fact that they had donated an organ, whether that be a liver or a kidney. Do they need to be psychologically evaluated as well? Yes. The psychological evaluation is probably the most critical and is often the stage at which most patients either change their mind or get excluded. The psychological evaluation is several fold. First, to assure that there are no psychiatric diseases that might be impairing their judgment, their ability to make an informed choice. Two, to assess for any evidence of coercion from the recipient, the family of the recipient, or others. Three, is to assure that the donor is making a informed decision that they can feel confident about. We do this with both a skilled social worker as well as a psychiatrist. These two individuals evaluate all of our potential living donors to make sure that the person is doing this for the right reasons, i.e. altruism and a desire to help the recipient, because the only benefit that the donor gets is through the recipient having an increased access to transplantation. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Brown, associate professor of medicine and surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation, Columbia University Medical Center, and chief division of abdominal organ transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Today we are discussing living donor transplantation. Dr. Brown, when someone decides to become a living donor with respect to their liver, do they usually donate to their relatives, friends, or are these recipients anonymous? Very few anonymous donors for liver transplantation exist in the U.S. Why is that? Because this is a big operation, I think there's reluctance both at the level of the transplant center as well as for the anonymous donor. Many of these anonymous donors, uh, who formerly used to be called Good Samaritan donors, exist in kidney transplantation, but many fewer for liver transplantation. The majority of living donors fall into two categories, adult children donating to their parents and spouses. That is probably about 50 to 60%, followed by siblings and occasionally parent to adult child. 
obviously a good proportion of living donor liver transplantation are also parent to baby. Does it matter if the donor is of the senior age group, even though if they're healthy? Some programs put a age limit on the donors. In New York State, we have an age limit imposed by the state of age 60. I think that in general, we want the donors to be in good physical condition. And there is some concern that an older liver that is also a hemi liver or half a liver may not function as well as a younger hemi liver. But in general, somewhere around age 60, most programs will not consider those patients as living liver donors. And how do you determine if it's a match? The liver is incredibly robust in terms of its acceptance into the body. It appears to be somewhat immunologically privileged. So unlike for kidney where HLA matching is quite important, for liver donation, we only need to have a blood group match. They have to be blood group compatible and reasonably size matched. If someone is donating a portion of their liver, what is it like for them? How long are they in the hospital? This is a big operation, and there is no way at the current time we can make this into a small operation. Though there is some research in doing laparoscopic liver donation, the size of the organ makes it a difficult procedure to do. So this is a large open abdominal operation, and the average donor spends about five to seven days in the hospital after the living donor operation. I hate to bring up economics, but I'm curious. In these situations, does the donor's insurance provide remuneration to the hospital for their operation, or does the recipient's insurance pay for the donor's expenses? The recipient's insurance pays for the donor's expenses, just like the recipient's insurance would pay for the cost of acquiring a deceased donor graft. The costs are roughly equivalent, though they may be slightly higher for the living donor because they have to have an operation as well as post-operative care. In general, however, because the waiting time and the number of complications pre-transplant are less for the living donor, the overall cost of this treatment for liver failure may be lower. When the recipient's insurance stops covering the cost for the living donor is not exactly clear. So that we always caution our donors that though their immediate care will be covered, that there may be long-term costs that may not be covered. Though in general, anything that is related to the donation, we generally cover at our program forever. Now, you certainly have had a great deal of experience in this field. Why do you think that people decide to become living donors? Well, I think that when you're watching your loved one suffer and you realize how long the waiting list is, many people want to do something. We're fortunate in medicine that we get to save lives every day. Well, maybe not every day, but some days. For a lot of people, this is their opportunity to save a life, and not only to save any life, to save the life of their loved one. Though our transplant system, which allocates livers to the sickest patients 
first provides a safety net for many patients on the waiting list, there still is a 20% waiting list mortality. And if you could reduce that waiting list mortality from 20% to close to zero by getting an earlier transplant, and you only had to take a 1 in 500 chance of dying to do that, many people will leap at the opportunity to save the life of their loved one. I want to thank Dr. Robert Brown, who has been our guest. We have been discussing living liver donor transplantation. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.